Hey, welcome to night school. You know, I mentioned a couple days ago losing at Wordle for the first time. Losing at that game Wordle. I explained what it was in that episode, so if you want to know, listen. Keep up. But it's funny how easy it is to get into that losing mindset. You know how it is almost like an infection or something. Because yesterday I was like, oh, I'll play again. And I'll win this time. But you know what? I, di- I didn't actually think that. I didn't actually think I'll win this time. I went into it and I was thinking, what if I lose again? What if I lose two days in a row? After winning 18 times in a row, never losing, what if I lose again? And I found that that impacted what, you know, that impacted uh, <laughs> the way I played it. Like I ended up getting to the final line where if I got it, if I got that line wrong, I would lose. And to be honest, it, you know, it was a hard one. The word ended up being smelt. And they don't choose hard words necessarily. It could be one of the most common words or it could be something a little weird. But it's not a game where they choose obscure words or awkward words or anything like that. They just choose five-letter words. And it could be any five-letter word that you have to guess. But I was playing it and I was kind of... Normally when I play it, I, I think like, oh, I'll get this. I'll get this by the third or fourth line. Even if it gets down to the last one. By by the time you get to the last line, it's usually obvious what the word is going to be, with few exceptions. But this one was really throwing me for a loop because I was able to determine that it ended in LT. And there's only so many words, only so many five-letter words that end in LT. And, uh, you know, I... I found some other letters that it had, and then I, I, I typed in spilt. And those words always throw me for a loop. They're not really in my vocabulary. Spilt. And then I tried swelt, which I didn't even know if that was a word, but swelter is a word. So, And it'll tell you if it's not a word. It doesn't accept it if it's not a word. It's got scrabble rules like that. But I tried swelt, even though I didn't know if it was a word. And nope, not that. So finally, I tried smelt because I was like, is spelt a word? Like, I don't even know. But I tried smelt and that was it. And I won. But I came very close to losing again. And the whole time I felt like I was going to lose. I was in that sort of loser mindset. And people talk about that. You know, it's psychological. It's spiritual. It's very easy to get into that loser mindset where you lose or something just doesn't work the way you want it to, and now you approach every situation with that mindset. But it's hard to shake it, because you also want to be realistic. You know, it's like erectile dysfunction. There's a lot of people out there where, if they've experienced so-called erectile dysfunction, they go into every intimate situation, intimate situation, thinking... Is it going to happen again? Is it going to happen again? They're preoccupied with that. They're not in the moment. And I was actually talking to a friend. I, 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 see, I, I never talk to my friends about that stuff. I never talk to my friends about ED or any kind of or just sex in general. If it comes up naturally, it comes up. But it's just even among the guys... It's never really been something you just sit there and talk about. It's, to me, it's like talking about going to the bathroom... And there's nothing wrong with either of those things. There's nothing wrong with sex. There's nothing wrong with going to the bathroom. But I think there are things that you don't necessarily need to talk about 
And I think there are groups of guys who talk about bathroom stuff like, oh, dude, you wouldn't believe, dude. And, and that's a weird stereotype that people have of men. Like, you'll hear women say this, where they're like, guys will just talk about, like, oh, you, you wouldn't believe the shit I just took, dude. And even just saying, even just joking about that right now, I don't like. <laughs> even just saying that as, as a hypothetical, I don't like. But they have this idea that, like, guys just talk like that. Maybe certain groups of them, and maybe those are the same type of guys who are like, dude, I fucked it, dude. But I found that, you know, most guys, and I, I've been friends with different different types, I mean, Growing up, I played football, had a lot of friends who were athletes, you know, I've been involved in music and art and uh, had just totally normal fans who just, you know, watch TV or normal friends, Jesus, um, who watch TV and that kind of thing. And I, I don't find that most men are just chomping at the bit to talk about that stuff. But, it, you know, when it comes up, it comes up naturally because it's interesting. And a friend was talking to me about that, who I won't name. But somebody was telling me how he's he's getting all this attention from women lately. But he, he's really resistant to doing anything about it. Because he had some sort of trouble uh, in the bedroom. And now he's worried that that's going to happen every time. And it's gonna just going to screw things up. I totally get it. And I, I believe that's very common. You know, people say, oh, it happens. But I believe it does. I mean, and some people just aren't meant to do that. And I think, you know, we, we also have this very distorted view of how sex happens, happens. Where you'll hear that people had sex and, and you're like, oh, it's like you imagine that it must have been like porn quality sex, that it must have been great. I'm sure some people do that. But it's like just because something is technically sex doesn't mean anything. It reminds me of uh, when I was... Some years back, a friend of mine went to our hometown and was hanging out with some guys that we went to high school with. And there was this guy who was, um, he was a bimbo. He was like the guy that all the girls liked, but he had no personality. He was very popular. And he's like one of those guys that men couldn't understand why women liked this guy so much. Like, yeah, maybe he was kind of handsome, maybe this or that. But it's, it's one of those people you look at, like women have their version of that. Like when women see men fawning over a bimbo, they think like, oh, what's so special about her? This guy was the male bimbo. And, you know, I didn't dislike him or anything. You know, I didn't really like him either, though. He was just one of those guys you're like, there's nothing to him. And I knew him, you know, I'd hung out with him before. There was just nothing to him. But he was one of those guys that girls like, but... My buddy was hanging out with him and a couple other people, and I think they were drinking and smoking weed, and that guy, the bimbo, the capital B bimbo, he raised a hypothetical question where he was like, if you, like, put it in a girl, but nothing happens, does that count as having sex? And then my friend relayed that to me. It was it was like some sort of philosophical question. And it was funny to me because it, it said a lot about that guy's experience. Like that guy probably had been in that situation. He'd probably been in that exact situation. And he was, and it was unsatisfying, obviously. And so he was wanting to get his friend's feedback on what basically whether he could count that 
which, you know, it's, you've got to get scientific about sex. You've got to count. Oh, my number. My number. I didn't even know what that meant. You know, years ago, somebody mentioned like, oh, a girl mentioned to me, like, I've never told my mom my number. And I had no idea what she was talking about. I said, well, your number? And, I, and, then, and then she clarified, and I was like, oh, I, I, I never knew that just this vague term, my number. My number. <laughs> like, I thought she was talking about her phone. I, seriously, I was that naive about what that meant. I thought she meant, uh, like, I haven't told my mom my phone number. And I was extremely confused. But, you no, know, she meant the, her number of sexual partners over the years. But, uh, I mean, I guess that's why people, that, why this guy, the bimbo, would propose that question. You know, where it's like, if you, if, if you basically, if you put it in somebody, but nothing comes of it, no pun intended, uh, does that count for your number? Well, on a quality level, no. I guess on a quantity level, but when you hear about other people, like, cause people gossip about sex and it says a lot that people gossip about that so much, but when people gossip about sex, they'll say like, so-and-so and so-and-so got it on. They hooked up, but you don't know what the quality of that was. You don't know what, what actually happened. I'm sure many times, yeah, they had like porn star quality sex. <laughs> I'm sure that happens all the time, but you know, you also don't know if it was some awkward night of ed you throw alcohol in and that increases the likelihood you you just have no idea you only hear the statistic and so my friend's saying like he'd had issues with that i don't even know that that's an issue i mean i think some people are just wired differently too I mean, I find, I've always found it extremely foreign to just barely know somebody and to want to just be nude with them. I don't even like to be naked by myself. Like, people who walk around the house naked are weird to me. They make me uncomfortable. Not, you know, even if I'm not around them. Like, many years ago, I was buying weed from this girl. She was a lesbian, and uh, she warned me before we went into her apartment She's like, oh, just a sec, I have to check. Uh, my girlfriend sometimes walks around naked. You know, she, she's usually naked in the house. And trust me, there was nothing, there was no come on to this. It wasn't like lesbians inviting me to their place. Like they were, they were true lesbians. But she was like, oh yeah, my girlfriend, she, you know, she's always naked in the house. I just have to check to make sure, just warning you. And it's like, I can't imagine doing that. Walking around the house naked. If you do that, you know, I don't judge you. I'm just saying, me, for, speaking for myself, being shirtless is cool. I like being around the house shirtless to some degree. But it's like the, uh, you know, that apple that Adam and Eve took a bite out of really got me. Back when that happened, it, it really carried down to me because, you know, I've got to at least be wearing underwear and gym shorts if I'm around the house. People who go around naked. And so extend that to being with somebody you barely know and you're naked with them. And I find the human body bizarre when you actually look at it. Like we're so used to our evaluation of the human body. Like we look at each other's noses 
And like, that's a good nose, or that's a big nose, or that's a bad nose. Think about how fucking weird a nose is. Think about how weird, like, like the fact that men walk around with a dicky dangling, and it looks the way it looks. That boobs just hang off a woman's chest the way they do. I'm attracted to, the, to a, a woman's body, but it's like, it doesn't change the fact that it's extremely weird. And it's weird, too, to just barely know somebody and just get naked with them. This thing that you don't do ever, that you're not allowed to do, something that's considered criminal to do it just on its own, to go out naked. And uh, to just be there in a room with somebody in the, under those circumstances, I find it very bizarre. Even if the passions are there, I find it very bizarre. And... Uh, you know, you're hearing reports about how I, I've heard this from women I know. You know, if you have female friends, I don't. I really don't like to talk to them about sex. If you have platonic female friends, I really don't like to talk to them about sex. I don't think you should do that. But you pick up on little things. Like back when I drank, you'd hear little things, and I would hear stories like that. They would mention like their new boyfriend, like, oh, you know, it's great, but it's been a month, and we really haven't been able to to do it. And uh, from what I gather, that's not that uncommon. I don't know how much that has to do with the fact that people find it weird or they they feel some sort of pressure or they have some sort of like failure mindset. I was telling my friend, too, there's all this like testosterone loss going on as well. Like I have a higher amount of testosterone. But uh, younger generations it, it like actual measurements are showing that there's less and less testosterone. And you wonder how that factors into all this gender fluidity that people are experiencing, you know, like, like uh, you wonder how much that factors in where younger generations have less, less testosterone. My generation has less. I think they've found that each generation is losing more and more testosterone for reasons that we don't entirely know. But you, you throw that into the mix, and so you have people with far less testosterone. I mean, from what I've heard, too, you know, studies show that uh, Zoomers aren't even that sexually active at all. And I imagine coronavi may factor into that. But this was going on before that. They found that, I think millennials as well, that sexual activity has been on the decline, which is interesting that that goes hand in hand with uh, sex positivity. The age of sex positivity has actually led to a decline in sexual interest, genuine sexual interest with another human being. Because, you know, I've known some girls who identified as sex positive, and while some of them did have a lot of sex... Many of them bordered on asexual. Like I had a girlfriend who really wasn't very sexually responsive and I was totally fine with it. I didn't feel any issue with it actually. But her group of friends was very into the whole like slut walk, sex positivity thing. And so I think that she felt the pressure to have that philosophy even though she didn't do any of that. Even though that wasn't her at all, it wasn't who she truly was, and and she didn't she didn't try to keep up with them either. Like she 
she didn't uh, engage in the same behavior they engaged in. But I could tell she felt bad about it. That's what sucked is she felt bad. I could tell she felt conflicted. Like she felt like she should share their views on that kind of thing, even though it was totally foreign to her. It was clear that it was very foreign. That's the interesting thing is there's a lot of people like that. A lot of people who are very vocal about sex positivity and all that turns out aren't aren't even having much sex. I think part of that is because it's not attractive. Like I've never been attracted to that. I've never been attracted to a woman who just throws that stuff out there. Not, you know, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm attracted to bimbos. I'm attracted to like trashy sexuality. Like if a woman is in a revealing outfit, like if she's in really tight pants or has cleavage, I'm 100% into that. But I'm not into them talking about it. I'm not into them... I'm not into them talking about it in a socio-political context. Not that I think it's wrong, completely wrong to um, push back against true repression. But speaking purely in terms of attraction, I've never been attracted to that. Never been attracted. And often when I hear it, it sounds like posturing. Like my buddy Nick and I were at a bar here many years ago. And there was this girl sitting at another table, kind of like a, like an anarchist sort of girl. I hate to put people in categories, but it's like she had that, her, her style of dress and her vibe and everything. The group of people she was with was very much in that style. And she was just like going on and on about like how sexual she is and her escapades and, and all this. And I, I would never dream of censoring her. But it seemed so performative. We were both just sitting there. And, and I mean, my buddy, you know, he has a similar view as I do. Where he wouldn't demonize somebody for doing that. But it was just so obviously performative. And she was so clearly projecting her voice so that everybody would hear it. It was such a clear signal. And we were just sitting there laughing about it. Like we weren't sitting there like, how dare she? Oh, my God. We were just like, oh, can you believe this? And I, I got, I ended, up, I ended up getting really drunk, and I had a glass, like probably an old, uh, probably a whiskey coke or something, with ice cubes in it. And I started holding up. I, I emptied the glass, and it just had ice cubes in it. And I ended up like holding it up to my ear, like putting the glass around my ear, and like pretending like I was using that to listen to that table. And then I ended up like putting an ice cube in that ear. It got really absurd. But I was just like, what do you do in response to that? It was so over the top. And I see that a lot where it's like people, they need to broadcast it. And there's this idea, though, that like there's a double standard, like, oh, men can do that. I don't like it when men do that. I've never been a fan of of so-called locker room talk. And I don't know that many guys who do it. Like, I, I really haven't known that many people who just can't wait to talk about that. And you know what? Often when they do it, it seems performative too. Like the kind of guy who's at a party with all guys or a get-together and is like, dude, this is a fucking sausage party. I've heard people say that. I remember being in high school at some sort of, like my friend's parents were out of town, so like five or six guys were just hanging out, drinking, smoking weed. And like some dude, some friend of a friend was like, dude, this is a fucking sausage party. Where are the girls, dude? 
And it's like, you're the one thinking about our dickies, man. I think it's a pleasure to get together with a bunch of dudes and just shoot the shit and not have the distraction of women. I like it when women are there too. But you know what? You can enjoy either situation. Sometimes it's nice. Like when men go on hunting trips, it's not like they're out there being like, oh, we're the women, dude. This is a fucking sausage party. I think it's really nice when, because all it takes is one woman to come to a party and all the guys are revolving around her. So just having the guys hanging out in a, in a, in a, in a free environment, you're the one thinking about genitals, you know, you're the one thinking about that. And for that matter, why don't you call the girls? If you're so eager to have girls around so you can mingle with them and flirt, whatever you're going to do, how come you're not the one calling them? How come you don't have a supply of girls that you can bring over? How come there's not a girl that you can call and meet up with? If you're such a ladies' man and that's such a, a preoccupation for you, why aren't you calling a girl of your own right now and going and meeting up with her? Why aren't you inviting her and her friends here if you want that? It's like, dude, this is a fucking sausage party. Where are the girls? You're asking us to be your pimp? You're asking the guys who, who can call girls to bring girls here for you? That always made me laugh. And, and guys who, who, you know, volunteer too much sexual information, they're more like that guy than they are the average guy, in my opinion. But, that, you know, that's a, a thing I've talked about on here before is that the narrative about men comes from people who have never been in an environment with only men. And if they have, they're often insecure and weak men. Not physically weak, but just men who feel threatened by other men. And not that those situations don't happen where men are terrible and they talk about terrible things, whatever. They have a, you know, there are bad cultures. Sometimes that's a group of friends. Sometimes it, it's something larger. But a lot of the narrative about what men do and what men talk about and what men are comes from people who don't even know what it's like to be in a room with just men. And you know, I had a friend who was kind of a secret ladies' man back in high school. Like, you would never think so. You would never expect it. But it turns out, like, behind the scenes, he was getting a hold of girls and doing stuff with them. And it kind of blew our mind. Because it just didn't seem likely. And he'd, been do- he'd apparently been doing it since he was like 14. But you know what he did is, is he was never a guy who was like, where are the girls, dude? Dude, where the fuck are the girls? Like, dude, you're going to make me stay at this sausage party without girls? You know, he was never that guy. He would just call them or message them and he would go meet up with them. And sometimes you'd be hanging out with him at a party or something and he'd be like, oh, I'm going to go over to her apartment. I'm, oh yeah, I'm going to go hang out at this girl's apartment. And I was like, wow. You arranged that behind the scenes. Like she's not even part of our group of friends. <laughs> how'd you even know? How do you, how'd you, even, <laughs> how'd you even get in touch with her? You know? Uh, and, uh, cause that's what like a guy who is a ladies man or a secret ladies man is going to do. It's not performative. It's not like I'm going to bring a girl to the party so I can flirt with her in front of you. It's like, no, he's he's making moves behind the scenes. I just remember thinking like, wow. But uh, 
that performative side of you know sex positivity today is a big thing where you broadcast it and the idea i don't disagree with the fundamental idea which is that we shouldn't live in a sexually oppressive society but sex becomes more attractive when it's not broadcast everywhere like people talk about how sex sells oh dude all the sexuality in advertising there's so much sexuality in advertising. I've never been turned on by advertising. You know, I've never been turned on by an ad of a pretty woman. Something about it removes all sexuality from the equation. And it certainly never sold me anything. There must be something to it. Some people must be drawn in by that. You know, another version, too, of that, like, performative sexuality. Like, there used to be a bar by my house that I would hang out hang out at. And it was just, it was like a, a normal person bar. You would never see anybody hip or cool. I would never see any of my friends there. It was near my house. I could go there. The decor, everything was just, like, kind of a, like, a middle-of-the-road bordering on... Like it, it was like a like a hotel decor in the sense that like I've mentioned on here before, hotels they have that fake luxury. They it's like their their decorations are cheap, but they're cheap items that are made to look fancy. And that's kind of how this bar was. It's like they had cheap metallic decor that looked slick and modern, but it was really kind of a middle of the road bar. But I'll go there to hang out and. Honestly, just kind of listen to people, like listen to what normal people said at a bar and I would draw and it was near my house. So I could go there on a weeknight, didn't have to go far. And I remember like this group of people came in and sat down next to me and they had this big ad on the wall. It was like a vintage beer ad for Olympia beer, which used to be produced here. And it was like a woman's ass in tight jeans, just her ass. Like you couldn't see the rest of her. And she had a beer tucked into her back pocket. So it's, it's exactly what I'm talking about, like using sex to sell a beer. Guys won't drink beer unless you sell it with a, a tight ass and jeans. But this, this like group of people sat down and somebody made a comment about the ad, just probably how absurd it was, because it was an absurd ad, just like an ass in jeans with a beer can in the back pocket. That's all it was, giant. It was huge. And as there was, as somebody made a comment, like somebody laughed, and then this one guy in the group said, like, it's a nice ass, though. And I remember thinking, like, oh, yeah, they're very performative. Like, letting everybody know that he's straight, basically. Which actually is, is, what, a, which is what the sausage party thing is, too. That's the same guy who would say, oh, dude, we're at a fucking sausage party. Dude, this is a fucking sausage party. It's the same guy. And that guy's having like gay panic or something. That's what that is. It's gay panic. That's an actual term. It's like a guy who's at a party with all men is, is in his head. He, he's having some neurotic dilemma. And he, it's not because he's gay. It's not because he's secretly gay or anything. But his psychology has gotten, his wires have gotten so crossed that like being in an environment with only men has led him to think, oh, fuck, dude, if somebody... It's almost like he's viewing... It's like he's outside of his body looking at the situation thinking, oh, if someone sees me here with all guys, they're going to think this is a gay thing. 
That's totally what people think. They, a group of five guys hanging out at a house drinking. This is a gay thing, dude. <laughs> Whereas the rest of us are just there, and it's like, these are my brothers, you know? These, these are my closest friends. You know, we're really happy that we have the freedom to be here, you know? Uh, we're having fun. We're joking around. But it's that gay panic where, like, that guy gets this thought in his head. It's like, dude, five guys here. Dude, somebody's going to think I'm fucking gay, dude. Somebody's going to think I'm fucking gay, dude. And that guy's sitting down. I don't know why that stood out to me at the time. But it's the same. It's a different version of that. It's like the male version of sex positivity. And sex positivity is a, a female idea. Not that there's anything wrong with it. It's just that the entire framing of it is feminine. Because men have their own version, but they don't call it that. But this guy sitting down was his own version of that. It was like he had to be like, nice. it's a nice ass, though. And I, I shouldn't have remembered that. I shouldn't I shouldn't have I shouldn't be judging this man for that one comment, but at the time I just remember thinking like you had to say that. You had to let him know you're not gay. Had to let him know you're not gay, dude. But uh I don't know, you know, I, I I'm really uh cuz I I think sexuality is an interesting conversation. I think sex is an interesting idea. When you depersonalize yourself from it and you think about it, I don't like to talk about it in part because I'm really dissatisfied with the way the entire conversation has been framed from every side, from every possible side. And I mean, that goes for like scope and women too. Like I know my true friends because if we're hanging out and a total knockout comes in the room. We both look at her. We both know where our attention is going. Maybe we say something, but like, it's not like, oh, you, you get a load of her rack, dude. Did you get a load of her rack? Her rack? Her rack. Did you get a load of her rack, dude? You know, there's no need to acknowledge that. It's what I've said before about just positivity in general. Where a lot of conversations tend to be negative because when something good is happening, it somehow feels like it takes away from it to comment on it. Like if you're both watching a beautiful sunrise and you're in silence just taking it in, turning to that other person going, isn't this beautiful, dude? Kind of takes away from it. I feel the same way about like when a, a knockout walks in the room. I don't feel the need to turn to my friends and go, did you see her? If they don't notice her, maybe. Like, I've been at a bar with a friend before and, like, gone in to use the restroom, and there's a, a stunner, a stunning knockout, like, sitting at the bar. And, you know, you've had a few drinks, and I've gone back outside and told told a friend, a good friend, like, when you go in, look look at the bar. <laughs> you know, that's just giving a little tip. That's just saying, hey, if you don't, just make sure you look to the left. But it's like, you don't, you don't have a conversation. Go, dude, isn't she hot, dude? Isn't she hot, dude? Isn't she beautiful? You, you don't really have conversations like that. I totally go and talk to her, but I'm worried I wouldn't be able to get it up, dude. 
that's what my friend was saying. He's like, I don't, I don't really want to actually make a move. I don't want to actually do anything with these women. Cause we, we got into a whole conversation about it. Cause you're talking about how that there's this weird, women have this weird pressure on them now to, to get down early. And I don't think they all want that. Some of them do, but I don't think they all want to just have, I don't think they all want to go in the bedroom on the, the first date. But the direction our culture has gone, there is this pressure, there's this social pressure. I mean, if you even just tell somebody that you dated somebody, you went on a date or you've, you've gone on a couple dates with somebody, they often want to know, like, well, have, you, have you slept together yet? And people volunteer that. But I mean, courtship, the whole process of courtship, it wasn't just protocol that developed to make it harder to have sex. <laughs> you know, like they didn't, the courtship didn't develop just to make it harder to have sex. Like, oh, you have to, you have to like go on walks with her and her family for six months. You have to have a chaperone. You have to win her father over. That wasn't invented. Well, well, there is a repressive side of that. You know, everything has different dimensions. It's not like that was, that didn't develop organically you know, just to make it harder to have sex. And it didn't, it, it wasn't forced on people inorganically to make it harder to have sex either. You know, courtship is, you know, developing comfort. Courtship is developing sustainability. You know, it's, it's developing a rapport. And you can act out courtship even without all of those traditional guidelines. Like going on a few dates with somebody, going out for a month without doing anything is a good thing. And uh, if you don't want to do that, you don't have to. That's the thing, too. That's, that's the nice thing about living in a society that isn't re- sexually repressive is that for people who want to do that, they can. That should have its limitations, too. You know, people find out pretty quickly that that's not the way to live. But, uh, you know, you can develop your own sense of courtship. But without those traditional guidelines, the problem is, is that people think you have to do things a certain way. And an increasing number of people, because, I mean, I know from female friends with few exceptions, most of them don't want to sleep with a guy on the first date. Not that they don't want to, but they have the same reservations that a guy might have who doesn't want to do that. Maybe even more. But some of them do feel this pressure to like consummate the relationship early on. And uh, they think that's what the guy wants. And then they feel weird if the guy doesn't want that. That's the thing. <laughs> they feel weird if the guy doesn't want that. And some girls feel insulted. Some girls feel um, unattractive. I've been told that. Like I, I've, like from women I know, they've said that if a guy does isn't immediately interested in them sexually that they feel unattractive 
but courtship, you know, you can develop your own style of courtship and that can be on any timeline you want. It's not enforced, but without that guideline, it's like where we don't want to lose that entirely. Like without, when, when you lose that structure, you're now just having to create your own system and people aren't great at doing that. You know, people aren't great at creating their own systems for these things. Ideally, there's a middle path. Once again, the middle path applies to everything. There should be a middle path where you don't have to wait until marriage to have sex with somebody. But you also don't need to do it on the first date. You don't need that pressure. And I don't know why. I don't even know that it's erectile dysfunction. I think that I, I think that's too clinical. But the fact that ED is widely reported now. Widely reported. And probably more common than we even know since it's, since people are so embarrassed to talk about it. It's probably happening way more than we know. Because somebody can have a, like a, a half a heart on. And as that guy from my high school was saying, like, if you put it in her, does it count? I, I guess if you're measuring it scientifically. I mean, it would count as rape if you did that against your will. Like, you know, reading about the East Area Rapist, original Night Stalker years ago, there were a bunch of incidents where he sexually assaulted women, but they described him as flaccid. He still did things to them. He still went through the motions of it. But they described him as he wasn't aroused. It's still rape. It's still rape. Just because just because the, the guy if the guy breaks into your house and he sexually assaults you, it doesn't matter if he's erect or not. He's still it's still rape. It's still sexual assault. <laughs> so I think that that same idea applies to just consensual sex. Where if the guy's not fully aroused, yeah, I guess you could say it's sex. But why do you need to even classify it? Obviously nobody's satisfied. If you want to add it to your number, if that's your philosophy, well, I guess go ahead. But it says a lot about our psychology that we would even have that dilemma. Do I, do I consider this sex or not? This thing that's supposed to be very much in the moment, like I'm attracted to this person. I'm aroused by this person. There's a conclusion to this moment that we desire. You know, it seems to be the opposite of what it's supposed to be about. If after the fact, you're like, well, does it count? Seems like a lot of you've entered into a mind, a psychological minefield at that point. But a lot of people think that way. But I do wonder, too, with younger people having less sex, you know, because people have attributed some of the so-called erectile dysfunction to the amount of porn consumption. Like there's this idea that like men consume so much porn now for the last 20 years. And a lot of it's hyper specific. A lot of it is women they wouldn't otherwise sleep with. Women who are more attractive. Some of it's fetishistic. 
I think there's something to that argument. I think that has contributed. I don't think it's the only or even the biggest factor. Because what we've seen from porn over the last 10 years, because, you know, back when I used to look at porn more when I was, uh, you know, in my late teenage years, maybe early 20s, a lot of it was more like traditional porn. Like there was some amateur stuff around, but a lot of it, like the women did tend to look the way you'd expect porn stars to look. And porn did, you know, it, it was kind of, it was unrealistic. But when I look at a porn site now, there's tons of stuff that it's entirely realistic. There's tons of amateur content that seems to be very popular. A lot of guys actually like women that aren't, they like, they like realistic porn. They like women who are, who have body types that aren't necessarily a Hollywood porn star. And I don't think that there's necessarily an escalation in terms of like what a man needs from porn to get off. You know, I, I hate, you know, here I am going on about this stuff, but speaking for myself, it's like, I like certain things. I like certain types of women. It never really led to me getting deeper into it. Like th there were periods of my life when I was a teenager, maybe early twenties where I probably looked at porn once a day, maybe once in a blue moon, two or three times a day, which would have, cons which would have made me a complete porn addict in the 1950s. Like somebody who looked at porn once a day in the 1950s would have been the most extreme porn addict in town. But it says a lot that my generation, just looking at porn once a day when you're a teenage boy isn't that extreme. Like I knew kids who looked at porn practically all day, all their free time. I don't know how they did it, but they were obsessed. They had like folders. I, I mean, I told that story when I, I was on a huge dose, the, the, the largest dose of Robitussin of DXM that I ever took. I did that in high school a bunch of times. And I took like 12 ounces, which is a lot. And I was really fucked up at this. It was kind of a sausage party, actually. Just a group of guys hanging out at a house with no parents. Parents are out of town. And I took it. So I was like, oh, total freedom. I'm going to take a huge dose of Robo. And the friend whose house it was, he like busted out this uh, CD book, like a CDR booklet. And it was just filled with porn. He had like 50 CDRs, 50 DVDRs, what we call DVDRs. And I was just blown away that he needed those. Because it's like that's by that time, you could just go to websites and find porn. But he would like download porn. He had like folders. He had CDR spindles. And so that's a different kind of kid. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a different, <laughs> that's a different kind of kid. Uh, me looking at porn on a website once a day, and probably not every day, but just that it was something you could do once a day and it wasn't that crazy. You know, that's relative, you know, there's a relativity to it. But even having the level of access I had to porn, it didn't cause my taste to mutate too much. Like, yeah, there is a level of specificity that developed where I could find the exact thing that I like. But once I knew that that was available, that's, that's great. Whereas like in like two, the year 2000, 
when the internet was brand new to me, pretty much any porn was good. And you had a limited window of time because it was like there was a family computer and, you know, I only I was only alone in the house for like an hour after school, like waiting for my mom to get home from work. So it's like you had this limited amount of time. So you can't spend all this time. There's fewer categories. Like I still remember when big ass wasn't even a category. Like I was always drawn to that. And I remember back in around that time period, like that was not a category on porn sites. You would have to go to like the BBW section. And that was such a gamble because you're going to come across stuff that's just grotesque just to find a woman who's like slightly thicker than your average like taut porn star. So I, I still remember when like you couldn't even find a category that was big ass. And now that's one of the staples. But my taste didn't really mutate. But the interesting thing about porn, I have to say, too, and I think it says something about us, is that, like, you always want to find new porn. Like, you, like if you're into that, you're always looking for, like, a new video or a new girl. Like, you don't just find one. And this, this isn't just sexuality. It's also music. It's also all these other things that we're interested in. You don't just find one thing you like and say, oh, I found this one photo of a girl. Or for that matter, I found this one girl online. I'm just going to look at her every day for the rest of my life. And someone could say that that's... An, and then the other thing, too, is how you, you just want to... You don't want to even look at it when you're done. <laughs> you know, you, you want to, like, close that browser window right away. Not even because you're disgusted. Just like, I'm done with this. Because girls complain about that. How, like, men leave after they have sex. Or men, like, don't want to stay in bed. I don't know what it is about bed, but... W- even when sex isn't even involved, like women love to hang out in bed, whereas I find bed really depressing. Like when I wake up in the morning, I like to get out of bed. Women seem to like to stay in bed. Like their ideal Saturday, they stay in bed for half of the day. Even if they're not depressed, they just seem to find some comfort in hanging out in bed, whereas I hate it. But there's something about men like where it's like when they have sex, they like to get up. Even just like go to the kitchen and like pace around or do something else. They don't want to just hang out there. And I feel like that's the the real life equivalent of like closing the browser browser window right away. You don't do what you're doing and then just like keep the keep that page open afterward and be like, Oh yeah, she she really was attractive. She really is attractive. It's like once you're done, you're done. But then also that that idea of like you're not satisfied just looking at the same porn over and over again, which is a different thing. Like where before I had the internet and like I mentioned before that like somebody gave me like a third hand best of Jenna Jameson, third hand that I know of. It was this big, you know, like how old recordable VHSs were bulkier. They were a more solid plastic, like recordable VHSs got like the plastic got thinner and cheaper as VHSs started to get more passe. But when VHSs were new, the the recordable ones, the blank ones that you could record anything onto, the plastic was really thick. They were really sturdy. And so like sometime around, probably like 1998, yeah, it would have been around 1998, my friend gave me 
this best of Jenna Jameson, and it was all like there was there was tons of uh, like fuzz on it. Like somebody had recorded it from another VHS. They had daisy chained it or something. And his friend gave it to him, and then he gave it to me. And uh, so it's, it's it was the, a third hand copy, just from what I know. It wouldn't surprise me if other people had it before that guy. Wouldn't surprise me if if more than three people had that copy, because the VHS was clearly old. Somebody had clearly made that copy years ago, so that had made its rounds. But it was the only porn I had. Best of Jenna Jameson. So it was. Uh, that was just what you had. Whereas the internet, you know, it's it's increased your capacity to find different women and find different things and uh someone could say that's an argument for non-monogamy but that's how you know simplified the whole monogamy conversation is where people think because you're attracted to many people that means you shouldn't commit to a relationship or you shouldn't practice monogamy oh because you're attracted because, yeah, I mean, it's silly to think that you're only attracted to one person, but it's equally silly to think that you can't commit to a relationship because you're attracted. Like, you, you can't, you don't have the discipline. Or there isn't some kind of virtue. There isn't some kind of value to committing to one person, which there is. Just like courtship was not some, you know, just like courtship developed organically, in my opinion. Courtship developed organically to develop kind of maybe it became too systematic but the process that was actually taking place in courtship was establishing a rapport establishing comfort establishing trust planning ahead you know this is a commitment but before anything moves too far we're going to establish a level of trust, not just trust between you and the woman, trust with her family, making sure that you're compatible with her family, that they find you decent. I don't think that was a totally alien, inorganic idea. I think it developed organically. And people will recreate that. I mean, I've had female friends who say things like, oh, you know, I don't have sex on the first date anymore. And it's like they're developing their own system of courtship. Like they're reinventing courtship when they say that. Maybe not exactly, but based on little things they'll say about like kind of their expectation as to how things should develop, it seems like they're reinventing courtship. And I believe that courtship developed along similar lines where it's like we need, it, we need this to, we need there to be a process here that establishes comfort, trust, and whatever else. Before things move too far. And uh, I think monogamy is very similar. We're like, yeah, the entire world doesn't practice monogamy. But when you think about how many different cultures in different parts of the world do, how many different cultures found that idea seemingly on their own, doesn't that tell you something about it? That somebody saw a need for that? And then if you've known polyamorous couples, and maybe some of them managed to do it, 
But the ones that I've known around here, they're, they're living in a nightmare. They're living in a nightmare. And a lot of them stop doing it for that reason. It ends up turning into this complicated nightmare. Because now you're not just dealing with multiple people sexually, you're dealing with multiple people's personalities. And we know how hard it is for two people to get along. We know how hard it is for two personalities, two people's unique and damaged psyches to get along and harmonize. And now you throw in all of you throw in a bunch of personalities, a limited amount of time, jealousy, competition, not just competition between, let's say, two men who are sharing a woman, but competition between the man and woman. I've heard this story multiple times where people get into polyamorous relationships and they're together, they're a couple, but they end up kind of competing. Like, oh, she's she's going on a date with this guy. I don't have anybody. Like that poly guy that I worked with. He ended up like sexually harassing women at the workplace because his girlfriend was able to attract people at a way higher rate than he could. And so he was like, he was desperate. You know, he was losing the competition. And he would always talk about being polyamorous and he would try to promote it to everybody. Like he wanted everybody to be polyamorous. And I realized very quickly that he was promoting polyamory so much because he thought that it would increase the likelihood that he could sleep with people. And he would, uh, he'd always be like, well, there's a lot of jealousy to it, but it's, it's good because it's like, you have to work through it and you have to like overcome your jealousy. And it's like, you haven't overcome it. I agree. Jealousy is, has a function. But it sounds like you're just torturing yourself. Needlessly torturing yourself. So, you know, I don't think that monogamy was completely something that was forced on people to make life harder and more sexually repressive and to limit your experiences in life to one person or anything like that. And it's silly to think that, oh, you can... I mean, it kind of goes back to, like, the classic, like... A husband is like, oh, she's hot. And his wife is like, you know, jealous because the idea that he finds somebody else attractive is a threat. You know, there has to be a middle path to that, too. Where it's like, obviously, people find many different people attractive. Does that mean they have to act on it? Well, if there's a greater purpose to your monogamous relationship, you shouldn't need to act on it all the time. You shouldn't need to follow every impulse. It's like eating. There's a lot of great food out there. Does that mean you need to eat it all the time? No, you develop discipline. You have a system in place. You want your body, you want to be in shape. And if you realize that a certain diet is going to make you feel better, is going to make your life better, it's going to give you structure, there's a bigger purpose to it, you're going to stick to that diet. And that's kind of what, you know, I think a lot of monogamous relationships are, is that it's kind of like a diet. You're limiting yourself to something. You're limiting yourself to this relationship. But it's because there's a bigger purpose to it. 
And uh, so, yeah, like we when we look at porn, there's no relationship there. Like when I when I look at porn, I'm not looking, you know, I'm looking at it for one reason. I'm not looking at it to think like, oh, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's a purpose to this. I'm trying to find a girl who I can form a relationship with. There's no relationship whatsoever. She's not even she's not even somebody I know. And I've heard too, like I had a friend, I'm not going to name him, but I had a friend who got really into cam girls. And it was like a whole new world to me. But you know what? He got really upset when he found out this girl that he really really liked. He would talk to her all the time. They even talked on the phone. But this cam girl that he was into, when he found out she had a boyfriend, he was extremely upset. Because that's in us. And, and you know what? Like Even though it might have been a, a, a one-sided relationship to some degree... He did get to know her a little bit. So it was more than just a girl on a screen. He talked to her about stuff that had nothing to do with sex, just, you know, life and interests and things. But uh, that's a difference there. That's a difference between like talking to a cam girl and getting to know her a little bit. Even if it's mostly one-sided, a relationship of some kind started to form. Not a romantic relationship, but a relationship, like the possibility of a relationship. When you look at porn, just good old-fashioned porn, there's no possibility of a relationship. You don't. There's no loyalty. You're just looking at it for one reason. And uh, that's a difference between forming an actual relationship with another human being is with a girl you meet, you might be sexually attracted to her, but there's a possibility of a relationship here. And a relationship ideally should have some common purpose, some goal, even just to establish it, just to have a person. That's at least something. And so it's not just, oh, I find a lot of people attractive. Well... You know, have discipline. Don't give in to every whim that you have. And I wouldn't say I know everything about this. I wouldn't say that I'm absolutely right. This is just my take. Which is a funny thing, just unrelated to all this. It's just that it's funny that having a take threatens people so much. Like me saying, like, monogamy developed organically in response to the problems of non-monogamy, the dilemmas of non-monogamy. You know, and, and that includes murder and death. Or like a totally chaotic, non-monogamous environment filled with competition and jealousy. Where do you think that goes? So adding some structure to it. But even just even just criticizing non-monogamy, and you can criticize monogamy too. It's not perfect. But uh, it's funny that if you criticize non-monogamy, there's a certain t- sort of person who feels threatened by that. You're offending something when it's like, no, this is just my take. This is just my opinion. 
This is just what I've observed because I find it interesting. And you shouldn't be offended on the opposite side either. If you believe in monogamy, if you believe in the sanctity of marriage and all that, you shouldn't be offended because other people think that there's an alternative to that. Your lifestyle should be enough of an argument. The lifestyle you are living should be the only argument you need. If you're happy doing what you're doing, if what you're doing complements your life, what other argument do you need? It's what I always say, you know, about uh, anything. You know, it's like I'll tell you, it, it, it's like saying, going back to diet, there are certain things that if you eat them, and you regulate the amount of those things that you eat, you will be in better shape, you will feel better physically and mentally, and you won't need anybody to sign a petition or campaign for you. You won't need an argument. Like somebody who lives a healthy lifestyle doesn't even need to argue in favor of one. They can give advice, but they don't need to make any argument. Whereas you see these people who live very unhealthy lifestyles, who are fat, and they're clearly unhappy, and they blame all of their unhappiness on society, this abstract force of society. And they're actually offended by people who give healthy advice. They feel threatened when a fit, attractive person is given attention. They feel left out. And they have to argue for people to think the way they think. They have to make arguments like fat is fit. Fat is beautiful. I'm attracted to some fat girls. I've been attracted, you know, not, not, uh, basically like, I mean, I've said this before, but it's like, if someone has a, if someone still has what I would say, like the shape of a woman, I'm attracted to it. And someone would say, well, there's no shape to a woman, but you know exactly what I mean. Like if a woman's hips are wider than her body, you know, if she has some, if there's still like some kind of hourglass to her, even if she's fat, I can be attracted to that. It's when people lose their shape. And that's true for men as well. Like, you know, women don't like it when men lose their shape either. Like, women aren't attracted to a guy who the sides of his abdomen are wider than his shoulders. Why is that? Well, they're just not attracted to it. I'm not attracted to a woman where the size of her abdomen is wider than her boobs and her hips. Not like there's a scientific ratio to it, but I know it when I see it. I know <laughs> I know if I'm attracted to someone when I see them, it turns out. There's no analysis necessary. I don't need to consider it. I don't need to make an argument in favor of it. And so pay attention to that. Pay attention to like lifestyles that people live that require them to make an argument in favor of it. Because that argument usually never ends. They never really reach a point where they, they're like, okay, well, my lifestyle speaks for itself. Because the thing is, there's nothing wrong with being fat. There's nothing morally or ethically wrong with being fat. You can be fat and 
<laughs> and be better than every fit person in the world as far as being a human being goes. And I've known tons of fat people who are happy. They're doing better than I'm doing. But I've been fat, and I know that I felt way shittier physically and mentally when I was fat. Not because of insecurity or because of how society perceived me. It's just a body-mind connection thing. If you feel like physical shit, you feel like mental shit. And if you eat things that are just known to be bad for you in large quantities, you feel like shit. So it's all pretty self-evident to me. And you don't need to argue in favor of it. But... uh, I think that goes for any lifestyle, goes for someone's sex life as well. If sleeping around all the time with tons of different people works for you, and it truly works, it doesn't really require much of an argument. If you're sleeping with people's wives and girlfriends, well, that's a problem. But in terms of if the lifestyle works for you, you don't even really need to be an advocate for it, because the best advocacy in the world is simply who you are and people will know if it works for you like that coworker of mine who was always advocating for polyamory always talking about it always promoting it always encouraging it really inappropriate for the workplace by the way but you could tell he was trying to convince himself psych 101 And it seems like if it was working out so well, other people would say, hey, can you tell me about that thing? Can you tell me about non-monogamy? Can you tell me about non-monogamy? Because if something is working for you, people will come to you about it. People will want to know your secrets. You don't need to advertise it. You don't need to broadcast it. And so that's something that's important to remember in all this. But uh, it's a topic that needs to be talked about now and again because it's gotten so twisted. And people forget what sex is even all about. Like people have gotten this idea that because it is pleasurable, that's the entire purpose of it. Not that every time you have to, not that every time you have sex, you have to be religious and you know, only use it for conception. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to limit uh, sex just to your attempts to conceive a child, even though that is the reason it exists. And we act like that's a, a problem. The way things have been framed is that having sex to conceive a child is a burden that we have to avoid. And we have all these, we have pills, we have condoms, we have all of these devices we've created, surgeries, different things people do to avoid what that act is meant to do. And that's okay. It's okay to see sex as 
something pleasurable. Obviously, obviously it's also something people do to um, develop a bond. But if you look at the bigger picture, it's like sex makes a man and a woman or whoever, but uh, we're talking about conception here. It makes a man and a woman bonded. And so it bonds them closer together, and it also brings them a child. That seems like a interconnected process that has meaning to us as human beings. It bonds you to the person that is bringing a child into the world with you. Not that you have to use it for that purpose, but it feels good because your body is encouraging you to do that. And I don't see that as just a biological function either. I see that as a very spiritual thing as well. But it is bonding you to somebody because you are now bringing a child into the world and you need to be bonded as a family. You need to be bonded as, as man and woman. And what makes you want to do it is that it feels good. So all these things are bundled together, but we've gotten hung up on the feels good part of it. And to be fair, sexual repression has made people feel bad about the fact that it feels good and you want to do it for that reason. But the middle path is the way, I think. Where it's like you can enjoy sex for the pleasure of it, but... You can't forget what the purpose of it is and act like that's some hurdle that you constantly need to avoid and that it's a huge problem if the thing that it's meant to do happens. Insane. And that plays into people who sleep around all the time too where... This thing that bonds you to somebody psychologically and spiritually is now put in this context where you just uh, sleep with somebody and move on, or sleep with somebody for a short amount of time and move on. That wreaks havoc on people. The people I know who have done that a lot aren't psychologically well. Maybe you know people who are, but the people I know who actually have done that habitually it seems to fuck them up and they seem to know it but they've been tricked into this sort of social philosophy where they can't actually address what they're feeling about it because to do so would be some kind of political betrayal meanwhile they seem to just know it they seem to know what they're doing isn't working out because they're making a bond with somebody and then that bond gets ripped apart. And you do that enough times and it really it really messes with people. I mean, that even happens with just monogamous relationships. The number of people who are damaged by the fact that a girl broke their heart or a relationship didn't work out. The number of people who just can't move on and let go of that. And so um, the idea behind marriage is that you don't rip that bond apart. But you know what? Marriages aren't all meant to be. 
It's imperfect. But, uh, you know, a lot of people form these bonds on a very temporary basis. And that does something to somebody. So does not having that bond at all. Unless you have some purpose to yourself. I mean, there are horny celibates, as Ramdas would say. But there's also a lot of celibates who are completely content. Monks in particular. There are monks who are content to be monks. But they do have a relationship with God. They do have a, a relationship with something beyond this. They do have a purpose. Whereas you look at incels, and I'm like, a lot of those guys just need to get it out of their system. A lot of incels just need to sleep with a few really attractive women in their life, or, or just any women at all, like the virgin incel in particular. A lot of them just need to form a bond you know, have a couple relationships, have sex with a few people in their life, get what they want. They might even find that they don't need that. They might even find, I mean, a lot of those guys very well in a different society, in a different culture would be ideal for the priesthood or ideal for, you know, a monastery. I don't know. I don't know these guys. But I can't help but think some of them just aren't suited for that. but they're hungry for a bond. Yeah, they want sex. They want validation. A lot of them, I know, want a relationship. A lot of those incels, they're not just guys who are just like, I just want I just want hot girls to sleep with me all the time. A lot of those guys seem to want a relationship and they can't get it. And a lot of it's their own fault. A lot of it is they're not doing the right things and they're resentful and they become hateful. That's not good. There's no, there's no defense for that. But we can at least understand why they're feeling that way and how it happens and what a big problem that is. And some of them might realize that, oh yeah, you know what, that's not even for me. They might get in a relationship and be like, hey, I wish I was back to playing World of Warcraft. I have that thing that I wanted. I wish I had my free time again. I wish I had, you know, no pressure to, I wish I, I wish that I had no commitment to another person. Some of them very well might feel that way, but their egos are so damaged. And they don't have a bond at all. So the absence of a bond in that situation devastates these guys. And uh, the opposite also, though, like making a lot of bonds and breaking them quickly devastates people, too. So the middle path comes up again. For meaningful bonds, try to make them work. Or at least get over that. At least experience that so that you can get past it. It's funny, though, because this stuff does scramble people's brains. I mean, my brain got scrambled the other night. I went to the grocery store a couple nights ago, and there, there was just this, this chick there who was like a just a complete... Like, there aren't that many knockouts around here. There aren't that many women where you go to the grocery store, 
and you're just completely distracted. I don't know what it's like in other parts of the country, but I can tell you in Olympia, Washington, it, it gets it seems to get more and more rare that you go to the grocery store and you're just distracted. There's a woman there and you're just like, mm, you know, maybe maybe I do need tea. Oh, she's down the, she's in the tea section. And maybe I do need something in that aisle. I'm not a creep. You know, I don't follow women around the grocery store. But every now and again, there's a woman in the grocery store and you're just like, hey, you know, maybe maybe I should take that route. Because, you you know, it's like paranoia where, like I've mentioned before, how if you're a hypervigilant, maybe paranoid person, like you develop the ability to stay aware of your surroundings without making it obvious. Because when, when some, no matter how paranoid or hypervigilant you are, no matter how prepared you are, if a predator or, or let's just get away from predator and just say somebody who wants something from you, if they see you like looking around, they're like, oh, that person's scared. That person's weak. So if you want to actually be aware of your surroundings without communicating weakness, you learn to do it subtly. Like I've mentioned on here how if I'm walking down the street at night and somebody's walking toward me and they pass me, I always make sure that they didn't stop or they didn't turn around and they're going to come up behind me. I don't turn, I don't crane my head all the way around and make it obvious. But what I do is after they pass me, I kind of pretend that I'm looking off to the side, like, oh, I'm looking at the street. Oh, I'm looking over at those rows of trees over there. And so I just turn my head a little bit to the side, maybe, maybe just to the side. And then I, with my eyes, I then like look as far to the left as I can so that I can see behind me a little bit. I'm not craning my head. I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm using the different points of articulation that I have, where it's like, I'm going to turn my head a little bit to the side. And then I'm going to turn my eyes as far as they'll go so that it looks, if you were just to glance at me, it looks like I'm looking to the side, but really I'm looking behind me. I'm just using, I'm using my different points of articulation, articulation. Same thing with scoping out women. I'm never that guy who just cranes his head at a woman or makes it obvious, but you learn little techniques where it's like, there, there's still something in me. I need to look at her. <laughs> I, I got to look at her. But instead of making it obvious, you use your, you use your different points of articulation. You use your different points of articulation. You do. That's what I did at the store the other night. I was like, you know, yeah, you know, she's over there. Instead of staring at her and creeping her out and embarrassing myself, all those things are important to me. I don't want her to be uncomfortable. I also don't want to look like an idiot. So, you know, I'll just, I learned to look at her subtly. But um, it scrambled my brain because I found that, like, I was at the checkout stand and I was like, I forgot to even get my card out. Like, I stood there for a second. Normally, like, I pay as soon as possible. I get my card out, I swipe. But I was so distracted and preoccupied with, by her presence that I got up there and I, I was like not listening to the cashier and then like a moment passed and I was like, oh shit, I'm supposed to pay. So this stuff, it does overtake you. That doesn't happen to me very often anymore. It used to happen a lot more. It doesn't happen to me often at all anymore. 
It's the first time it's happened in a long time, actually. Like, I see pretty women. I see pretty women at the store. But it's rare that you see a woman and you're just like, oh, my God. Oh, oh my God. But anyway, I'm going to move on here. Got some stuff to do. No, no final point to make. I think all the points are pretty, ma- pretty much made here. I don't like the way these the different sides of this conversation have been crafted. I don't like the narratives around it. It's one of the most complicated topics that we have, but we've made it so much more complicated. We've made it very black and white. And then within the black and within the white, we've created this web of complexity. And I think that I think that the topic of sexuality is is going to be complicated no matter what, even though it should be simple, even though there's a lot about it that's simple. We've created this web of complexity, but those webs exist within this black and white division. So it's like the black form of thinking has its own tangled web. The white form of thinking has its own tangled web. When the reality is both of those mindsets and the spectrum in between them That tangled web should carry over between both sides. This land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave, this golden land to me. And when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free.